you may or may not know, but Heather and I went on a sabbatical this summer. You're aware, aren't you, many of you? Some of you are guests. Welcome. It's good to have you with us today. The church released us for three months, and our responsibility for three months was just to rest. And uh, we tried to do just that. One of my favorite souvenirs from our trip is this uh, sign that Heather bought me, this metal sign with a red dragon on it. Anybody know which of the countries on the island of Great Britain sports a red dragon on their... Yes, Keegan. Wales. Got it in one. Excellent. That's one of the nations within the United Kingdom. It's the beautiful country on the western shores of the island where Heather and I spent several weeks in early June. Remember King Charles? Before he was King Charles, he was Prince Charles, the Prince of Wales. Right. So Heather bought me this sign. And it's really beautiful. It has the red dragon of Codwallader on it, which has stood for the national pride of Wales for nearly 1,400 years. And you, can, you probably can't see it from there, but it is completely filled up with the names of Welsh towns and cities on it. And they all sound exotic, and many are unpronounceable for me because I don't speak Welsh. But we love to look it over and pick out the names of the places that we visited during our time there. Kilgarran and Cardiff and Abergavenny, and Pontypool, that one's fun to say, Pontypool, and Fishguard, and Cardigan, and St. David's, and Swansea, and Hay-on-Wye, and so on. And there's sprinkled throughout this little figures, and icons, and little, uh, little symbols embedded in between. It's really quite beautiful. Thank you, honey, for buying it for me. I haven't figured out where to hang it yet, probably in my office somewhere. And this metal sign like all good signs, has a central message, something it's pointing to. Does anybody have good enough eyes to tell me what it says right across the middle? Oh, you can read it. Very good. I heart Wales. I fell in love with that beautiful corner of the world. The beaches, the fields, the forest, the people, the culture, the church, the whole exotic thing. I heart Wales. Wales is, I think, the place where I, I finally started to rest on our sabbatical, where the rest caught up to me, so to speak, after a month and a half in. So we'll always have a special place in my heart. Why am I telling you this? Some of you are like, I don't know. I was wondering the same thing. It's to emphasize the idea of a sign. A sign points to something. In this case... My heart for Wales. A sign has significance. A sign says something. A good sign does. I mean, imagine a sign that didn't say anything. What would be the point of that? No point. Sometimes a sign is just a great big red octagon with four letters across the front. Important sign. It says, stop. Or we've got that sign out on 53, on Route 53, and it says, Lance Free Church, this way. Some of you used it today to find this place. Point, point, point. Snack and Yak kids, maybe you might want to draw a sign of some kind to share with Mr. and Mrs. Fulmer at Snack and Yak after worship today. A sign, if it's doing its job, points to something significant. In today's passage of God's holy word, John the evangelist writes about what he says was the first 
of his, Jesus's, miraculous signs. Greek word, semeon, and it means kind of what we mean by it, a sign, a a mark, a token, a, a signal. In this case, it is a miraculous event that is the sign. Did you catch that when Keegan read it? It's in verse 11. Skip down there and look at it again. This, the first of his miraculous signs, say Maon, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. That's pretty significant, significant, pun intended. Jesus performed a sign. Yes, it was a miracle, but it wasn't just a miracle. It was a miracle with a meaning. It was a miracle with a message. If you look closely at this sign, you got the message. It was written across the middle of it. Jesus said, John says that Jesus, with this sign, revealed his glory. To those who knew what was happening, and it's actually a surprisingly small number in this case, to those who knew what was happening, Jesus gave a glimpse of his glory. Now John has told us to expect that in this book. Remember what he said in the prologue? Chapter 1 verse 14, the word, what we've been memorizing, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And I don't know about you, but I want to see his glory too. So let's look more closely at his first miraculous sign. It's really a wild story. It's really weird and strange. Like if you don't know this story, when you read it, you go, what happened? How did that go down? I I put a note in my margins this week. This story is too weird to not be true. Nobody would come up with this. Nobody would do it this way unless this is actually how it went down. It's too strange to not be true. Obviously, Jesus is going to do a miracle here, but you could almost miss it. In fact, there were people who were there, who saw the miracle, who even drank the miracle, who didn't know that the miracle had happened. Isn't that wild? Now, I wouldn't do it that way, but that's because I'm not Jesus. This is Jesus revealing his glory. This is Jesus' first miraculous sign. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's jump back up now to verse 1 and see how this miraculous sign came about. John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. A wedding. Don't you love a wedding, a good wedding? What a wonderful event a wedding can be. And in Jesus' day, a wedding was a huge deal. Did you ever go to a wedding and think, when is this going to be over? (laughs) Or I can't wait till we get to the cake, right? A wedding in Jesus' day took about a week, okay? The feast might last a week. This was, life stopped, when two families came together to celebrate these two people becoming one. Wow. This was a big deal, especially in a small town like Cana. Remember, that's where Nathaniel came from? 
that really honest guy we looked at last chapter who Jesus invited to come and see, to come check him out and see if Jesus was as good as advertised. This is apparently the third day since then, and they've reached the little town of Cana in the northern region of Galilee, and there's a wedding going on that Jesus' mother was at. Now, John never tells us her name, but the other Gospels tell us that her name was Mary. This is the woman who gave Jesus birth. She carried him for nine months. Jesus is fully human, and nobody knows that better than this lady right here. And she's at this wedding. Perhaps she's related to the bride or the groom. If so, it's probably the groom, because he's responsible for the wine at the wedding. We're never told exactly who the bride or the groom are. We don't know their names. We just know they're getting hitched, and everybody's invited, including not just Mary, but Jesus and his disciples have gotten invitations in the mail. Now, we don't know how many disciples Jesus had at this point. Last week, we learned about five of them. Andrew, remember him? He's always taking people to Jesus. Probably John, the one that isn't named is probably John, being modest. Simon, who Jesus is going to rename Peter. Philip, who always says what other people are thinking. And Nathaniel, who might also be the disciple we call Bartholomew. So probably these five guys, at least, and maybe more, are with Jesus at this wedding. Jesus shows up with an entourage. And everybody is having a good time. Until disaster strikes. They run out of wine. Now you and I can't really understand what a big problem that actually was. Heather and I didn't even have any wine at our wedding, and it was just, fine, I don't drink, doesn't matter. But this was a total disaster for this couple, looming right on them. And it was even more for the groom and his side, because it was their responsibility to provide the joyful drink for the feast. It was shameful and embarrassing at best, and perhaps ruinous at worst. The bride's family might have been able to sue the groom's family for breach of contract. There was a financial liability on the line. It was a major failure of Middle Eastern hospitality, which is no small thing. It was a big problem. And Jesus' mother swings into action. Look at verse 3. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Mary knows about Jesus. Does she not? <laughs> Nobody knows better. She remembers that angel's visit. She remembers that she had been a virgin who was then pregnant. She remembers the shepherds and their story of the angels singing. She remembers the wise men and their gifts. She treasured up all these things in her heart. It's been about 30 years. And she decides that now's a good time to ask Jesus to do something. Perhaps it's because he's pulled up to the wedding with some disciples, some actual followers. She knew that one day that would come. 
Maybe she's heard that John the Baptist has pointed his bony finger at Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world. And she says, oh, Here we go. Whatever Mary's thinking is, she pulls Jesus aside and says, <clears throat> They have no more wine. This party's about to go down really quick. This wedding feast is going to be a failure. The joy is going to be drained from this event. Now, Jesus' response might have been very surprising to her. It is to me whenever I read it. Especially in the way he talks to the woman who has given him birth. Look at verse 4. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. He doesn't call her mom. He calls her in Greek, gune, in Greek, which is a respectful way of addressing her, but not particularly affectionate. It's kind of like our ma'am. By the way, kids, don't try this at home. Don't call your mom gune today. I'm listening, I'm hearing. Some kids probably trying it out right now. It's just for Jesus. Jesus says, Ma'am, why are you getting me involved in this? Dear woman, why are you trying to make this my business? It's fascinating because I think that that response signals that Jesus is fully on his father's mission. He doesn't take orders from his mom. Now that he has entered into public ministry, he is distancing himself from his mom so that she's no longer on the inside track. Doesn't mean he doesn't love her. We'll see by the end of the gospel that he does. But he's about his father's business now like never before. And also, at the same time, somewhat paradoxically, it's not yet his time to go big. Did you see that in verse 4? My time has not yet come. Literally, my hour has not come. We're going to see this idea of Jesus' hour over and over again as we study this book. Jesus says that it has not come several times over the course of the first 11 chapters. It's not my hour. It's not my hour. It's not my hour. It's not time yet for Jesus to get all of the attention. It's not time yet for Jesus to be lifted up. It's not time yet for Jesus to reveal himself fully as Israel's Messiah with all that that means. He's not going to jump up and do a miracle that says, Here I am! See me in all my glory! If there's a revelation of his glory, it's going to be just a glimpse. If he does anything right now, it's going to be quiet, reserved even elusive. We're going to see that again and again in this part of the Gospel of John as well. Jesus is somewhat elusive at this stage. He's private and careful in what he says and to whom. We're going to see him pull back, especially when people are getting the wrong idea about him or could get the wrong idea about him. It's not yet his time, but his time is coming. Now, at the same time, I love how Mary responds to Jesus' response. Mary is not offended. 
She's not put off by being called Gune by Jesus. She's not like, what did you call me? I'm your mother. No, she seems to understand what Jesus is doing. And she accepts everything Jesus says about it not being his time. At the same time, she's not deterred. She's able to accept whatever Jesus does here as the right thing. Which is a great example to you and me, isn't it? As usual, Mary is showing us how it's done. Modeling. Mary is almost always a model disciple for us to follow. She accepts whatever Jesus does here as the right thing. Do you accept something that Jesus is doing as the right thing? And yet, she still seems to expect him to do something. She knows his heart. Look at verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I almost think she winks at that point. Right? It's not in the Greek. Right? There's no wink there. But she just kind of gives a shrug to Jesus. Okay. And then she says to the servants, Perhaps she's family. Perhaps she has a responsibility for the catering. It's hard to say. Do whatever he tells you. And that too is an incredibly, incredible point of application for you and me today too, isn't it? Do whatever Jesus tells you. Even if it feels kind of crazy, do whatever Jesus tells you. What is Jesus telling you to do? What are his commands? Here, his commands to the servants are strange. Jesus does act. He does, in fact, do a miracle. He does something. He calls the crowd together, and he waves his hands over all of their cups, and he says, Alakazam, Alakazoo, wine for me and wine for you. Is that what he does? No, nothing like it. No, it's very quiet what he does. Look at verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. By this time, they might be empty, by the way. Everybody who has come to this wedding would have had their hands ceremonially washed before eating. The water was poured over the tops of their hands and the bottom. Sometimes they did it a certain number of times. It was a ceremony. Everybody's hands have been washed, maybe many times as this week has gone by. We don't know how many guests there were at this wedding, but we do know that there were six of these big stone water jars, which when filled, hold 20 to 30 gallons. What is 30 times six? Bunch of different answers there. I checked a calculator. It's 180 gallons. Imagine if I had 180 milk jugs up here on the platform with me, like when we fill it up with shoe boxes, and they're all full of water. That's how much water. And Jesus told the servants to fill them up to the brim. Look at verse 7. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water 
that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Now, just stop there for a second. When exactly did this miracle happen? We don't know. We're just told that it did. And by the time anybody actually drinks the wine, Jesus isn't mentioned again in this story. I think he might have done the miracle and then quietly slipped away from the wedding. Wasn't his hour. He told them to draw out some liquid from the jars and take it to the head caterer, probably the MC or the head waiter. And that guy never finds out where the stuff comes from. But the servants knew. And the disciples did too. They saw it all. Verse 9. Then the master of the banquet called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. I just always think, what about that, that groom at that moment? Going, we did? I didn't know. Now, we weren't sure just a minute ago if Jesus was going to do any miracle. But he not only does do it, he overdoes it. Not only does he provide wine, he turned water into wine. And not just any wine, he made the best wine ever. This was the superior stuff. This would have had a, a label on it with the highest numbers at the wine shop. Have you ever seen those labels they put on them? Say, this, this one's like a 92. This one's like a 95. I don't know what the scale is. I, hope, I guess it's 100. This would be like a 200, right? On a scale of 1 to 100. This is the best stuff that this guy has ever tasted. You've saved the best till now. Problem solved. Can you imagine what the feast would have been like after this miracle? John doesn't tell us. But I can just imagine how the mood of the party lifted. The disaster was averted and the feast became a festival. There was joy all around. They were enjoying the new couple. There was the dancing of the two families become one. Oopa! No, wait, they're not Greeks. They're Jews. Lachayim! Lachayim! To life, right? Fiddler on the roof. That's what's going on here. Wow! And Jesus quietly slips away without taking any credit. That is not how I would have done it. But that's how Jesus did it. And his disciples saw it and believed. Verse 11 again. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory. And his disciples put their faith in him. What do you think they saw? There was a revelation of his glory there. What do you think his disciples saw of Jesus' glory in this miracle? See, a sign is a miracle with a message. What was the message in this sign? Let's think about that for our application today. What of Jesus' glory was revealed? I have four quick points. And here's number one. His first miraculous sign revealed his compassionate heart. Jesus didn't do this miracle because he was Mary's son. He didn't have to do it 
out of a familial bond. It wasn't because he was blood with Mary or with the groom. He did it because he cared about Mary and about this family. His heart went out to them. He, he had compassion on them. He saw their plight and was willing to intervene. It's possible that the groom had really mismanaged his finances, and this was all his fault. But our Lord had mercy on him and quietly stepped in. Jesus cares. And if you believe that, then you will experience peace. His mother knew Jesus' heart. His mother knew that if she brought the problem to Jesus, he cared. His heart was probably going to go out to the family and want to alleviate their suffering and bring them joy. Do you know that that's the heart of Jesus? If somebody was to ask you, what is the heart of Jesus? What would you answer them? Do you know about his compassion? Do you know that Jesus cares? If you believe that, then you'll have great peace. He might not fix every problem you have when you ask. He won't, in fact. He won't. He does not take away all of our suffering. Not yet. Because his time has not yet come. But Jesus cares. And when the time is right, he acts out of his compassionate heart. And that changes everything. Which is point number two. His first miraculous sign reveals his transforming power. Jesus can turn bland old water into the best wine ever. And that's just for starters. Jesus can, take, he can turn ceremonial water into celebratory wine. He could turn disaster into delight. He could turn dryness into exuberance. He could turn the old into the new. He can turn death into life. Jesus can do miracles, including miracles in our lives today. What are you asking Jesus to transform through his power? A lot of commentators I read this week wondered if there was spiritual significance of the water being ceremonial for washings, like the Old Testament law, and then the wine symbolic of being like the new wine of the new covenant of grace. And I say, maybe. And some pointed out that the wedding going dry was like the spiritual dryness of Israel under the Pharisees' leadership, and the wine being like the joyful spiritual life that faith in Christ will bring. And I said, maybe. Whatever symbolism might be there, we know that what we see is power to transform. Jesus revealed his glory, and Jesus' glory is that he has real power to make real change. If you believe that, then you'll experience great joy. Because you know that he has, truly has power and can do amazing things in your life. Do you believe that? If Jesus can do this, just think what, about what he can do with your problem. 180 gallons of the best wine that this guy has ever drunk, which really shows how Jesus really is. And that's point number three. His first miraculous sign reveals... His messianic identity. In other words, Jesus is the Christ. Remember, that's the point of this book. John tells us at the end in John chapter 20, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these signs, like this one, are written that you may believe that Jesus is 
the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In time, his disciples got the message. He makes wine. He makes the best wine. He's the Messiah, isn't he? Yes, he is. Last Christmas, we were studying the book of hope in the prophecy of Jeremiah. Do you remember? So much of Jeremiah was gloomy because he had to be a broken record about a broken covenant. But in chapters 29 through 33, there was this bright ray of light prophesying about the Messiah who was to come to enact a new, unbreakable new covenant. Do you remember this? Do you remember how Jeremiah described the Messiah and his kingdom? Listen to Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 10 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations. Proclaim it in distant coastlands, like in Wales. He who scattered Israel will gather them and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. For the Lord will ransom Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, and the oil. The young of the flocks and herds. They will be like a well-watered garden and they will sorrow no more. Then maidens will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. It'll be like a great wedding feast. I think that the disciples caught a glimpse of Jesus' messianic identity when they saw the party really getting started. That's the Messiah right there. And we know that that's just a foretaste of a wedding feast still to come. The marriage supper of the what? The Lamb. When Jesus is not just an amazing guest, but the bridegroom himself. This miracle was a sign pointing to his identity. And if you and I believe it, then we will have life. Life in his name. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? If you do, then you, like his disciples in verse 11, will have life in his name. He thus revealed his glory. Last point, point number 404, as we go to the Lord's table. His first miraculous sign revealed his perfect timing. As Jesus told his mother, this was not his hour, but his hour was coming. His hour would come. And when his hour came, Jesus did not flinch from embracing it. In a few months, when we get to John chapter 12, we're going to read what Jesus said in his final crucial week of ministry. He said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies... It remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. That's us. Now my heart is troubled. But what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. 
It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Do you believe that Jesus has perfect timing? It often sounds, it often seems like Jesus is late. He could have made the water into wine before the old wine ran out, but he didn't do that. He could have done it before his mom talked to him, but he didn't do that either. Sometimes it seems like he's delaying things. And he is waiting for his return until the full number of his chosen ones come to repentance, until his father says, go on back. But that's because his timing is always perfect. He knows exactly when to act and what to do. 